Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Dorian Linsky. Keir Starmer's Labour Party can't move for analysis, criticism and friendly and unfriendly advice at the moment, but all in all of it is worth reading. Some of the sharpest and most forward-looking commentary over the past year has come from my guest today, James Medway. He was Chief Economist at the New Economics Foundation before becoming advisor to Shadow Chancellor John MacDonald for four years. He was recently appointed Director of the Progressive Economy Forum, and he writes frequently for publications including the New Statesman, Tribune and Navarra. Hi, James. Thanks for joining me. Hi, yeah. Thank you for having me on. So I want to start with a couple of lines from a recent piece he wrote for Navarra, that Johnson is, if nothing else, good at winning elections and thinks constantly about how to win the next one. This makes him the antithesis of Labour. The party is bad at winning elections and obsesses continually about how it could have won the last one. Do you think that this is a perennial problem for the party, whoever's in charge, and, and, and why? I think it's, it's completely a perennial problem for the party. I mean, it's so striking. The, the Tories are, are very, very good at sort of dusting themselves down and working out what to do next. You, you saw it. The bit that really drummed it home was, was what happened after 2017, where you had, I mean, it was, it was a result that most people did not expect. This is a very, very close election in the end with uh, Theresa May reduced to you know, losing her majority and a hung parliament and the deal with DUP and, and the rest, as they say, is history. Um, this is not a result that people anticipated. And, and it was read on the Labour side as like, basically, we almost won. Uh, and then next time it'll be it'll be sort of one more heave and that's that. Whereas on the Tory side, they viewed it as a, a complete, unbelievable disaster that, that they had to understand and get their heads around. And there's a great deal of sort of soul searching and actually quite detailed analysis, some of which published on sites like Conservative Home, as to what went wrong for the Tory party. So you could see they had a really good process of thinking about what they got wrong when they didn't get the result they wanted to. And on the Labour side, we had quite a, a long process of how great it will be when we get the result we want. So, and, and I think this is this is sort of mentality is, is kind of for some reason baked into the at least the, the British left or the English left, perhaps that, that we, we we do tend to sort of say, look, uh, I mean, you had it with Peter Mandelson, you know, Tony Blair won these elections, therefore we should sort of do what Tony Blair did. Well, this is like twenty years ago, uh, and actually, if you look more closely at some of the elections he won, he won them whilst losing seats, which is not something Labour can afford to do. And of course, you get on the other end of the party, we say, well, if we'd just sort of done something different on Brexit in twenty nineteen, it would all have been good, and if we can just rerun twenty nineteen or twenty seventeen, mm. it'll all be good next time round. So, so. So it's, it's quite a sort of institutional feature of how the left in general and the Labour Party in particular thinks about itself relative to the Tory party, which has of course been in power for most of the last 200 years. And this is part of the secret to their success. Because I was reading um, a lot of your recent pieces and you criticised the sort of technocratic arguments of, of Blair and Mandelson um, that have just been sort of, uh, you know, back in the New Statesman last week um, as out of date. But they're also the sort of the old anti-austerity message won't work against this current government and the importance of culture war issues, which a lot of people think is this, is really vital. Uh, it's a new dimension that you say is, is overstated. So what between these sort of these these sort of I suppose what you would consider sort of the wrong priorities, what what is it do you think Labour should be focusing on if it's if those if all of those kind of you know routes to success are, are closed off? I mean, the, the bit, this is where I do agree with, with Peter Mandelson. He got sort of mocked for this, and understandably so. When he talked about Labour has to talk about the instrumentality uh, of its offer, uh, which is a sort of jargon word, I, and I think this is how he meant it, and it's certainly how I read it. Which is that it needs to think a bit more about what it's actually offering people and how it will address something in their lives. Uh, and this is like the bread and butter of what Labour ought to be doing. You know, Labour wins when it says to a bunch of people, "This is how your life will be better under Labour." This concretely is, is what it's going to deliver for you. Uh, and I think we got completely, uh, almost completely distracted since 2019, chasing all sorts of things that, uh, that that we shouldn't be chasing and seeing things the wrong way around. The, the Red Wall is the most 
most striking example of this. I thought it was a brilliant bit of uh, reporting The Economist probably about a month ago, um, where you know, they'd actually gone to some of these red wall seats. And, and far from the kind of the stereotype, really, of, of, of the, it's a patronising term, you know, sort of left behind Britain, these sort of post-industrial areas of the country, people by sort of very uh, depressed not very well-to-do people, working class, uh, all switching over to the Tories now because of some mysterious culture war influence. And it's like, yeah, all right, maybe there's bits of that. There's bits of that. But the bit that the economists really focused in on was, look, the reason the Tories are winning votes in places that used to be Labour is because lots of these places have people who in the rest of the country would normally be Tory. And then they kind of moved over to the Tory, uh, over, the, over to the Tory side of things just fairly recently. Brexit kind of unloosened this. But this is what the Red Wall does for the Tories. It's basically a way of moving a load of people in the south of England would already be voting Conservative into voting Conservative in the north. So in other words, the, the focus for Labour shouldn't really be how do we win back working class former Labour voters in the north of England? You know, we can do what we can to shore that up. But the various sort of rigmarole of going around saying everyone's socially conservative, everyone's this, that's the other, culture war sort of nonsense doesn't work. What they really need to think about is how do you get middle class northerners to vote Labour instead of Tory? which is quite a different way of looking at things. And that's going to be an economic sort of argument. That's going to be an argument about cash in people's pockets, public services that are run well, you know, looking after people's children properly, all these sort of sets of issues that you can start to make work there that would probably work better than tying yourself up in knots, trying to look socially conservative or waving a flag or, or whatever the various non-solutions to this problem have been, have been proposed. Well, you've also taught... Um... Uh, possibly in a sort of slightly tongue-in-cheek way about the the blue wall, the kind of uh, sort of graduate-heavy Romania areas, I suppose, often in the south that, that moved towards Labour in the recent council elections. Um, and I'm kind of obsessed with this this idea that that that, that Labour has that some voters are sort of sacrosanct um, and it's sort of shameful to lose them, and then other voters are sort of slightly embarrassing and they're really not they're not sort of in tune with the sort of core core of labor because of labor's history because it's baked into the the name and so on um do you think labor is unwilling to accept that its core vote has changed it hasn't flipped from working class to middle class by any stretch but it it sort of has evolved and is it is it just kind of agonize over maybe accepting that there's been this shift well, there's, I think basically you're right, but I think there's, there's a bit to unpack there, which is the, the, the shift in these southern seats is not a shift towards being middle class. It's a, it's a shift of where sort of people more inclined to vote Labour because they're working class uh, locate themselves. If you find yourself, you know, even if you're a graduate, you find yourself in an insecure job, uh, paying far too much for rent, you, you can't really make a living of it in London where lots of graduates end up. So you end up uh, across the rest of the southeast. And this has been happening for, you know, for 10 years now. This is how the different property markets uh, and job markets interact with each other across much of the country. So you find lots and lots of places outside Side of London, where lots of people are moving to, we're not, you know, it's not talking like massively well paid, and this is like going off to the suburbs and living in the countryside. This is going where where they can get a job, where housing's a bit more secure or a bit cheaper, and they can uh, uh, you know, make a slightly better life for themselves. It's, it's a, a push of working class, and if you if you're going to stretch it, maybe sort of lower middle class employment across the south of the country. And, and you are right to say that Labour has a problem with this, that, that it gets really caught up. And I think the left in general gets really caught up with thinking that what it really wants is people who are definitely, definitely Labour people and have been since the year dot, we can always identify them. And it gets very almost sentiment, sentimental about these sort of uh, places and these sort of voters, and it clings on to them. Whereas the Tories just don't care 
Like they really don't care where their vote comes from. See how rapidly they've decided yeah. that they can win votes in the north of England. So they, so they sort of dust down this rhetoric about levelling up uh, and do a few other bits and pieces and create a whole rhetoric. Uh, ben Hodgson up in um, Teesside, the Metro Mayor up there, re-elected with a thumping sort of seventy-six percent, you know, almost North Korea-style vote, uh, is a past master of this rhetoric. Bit of green on top to sort of hold the whole thing together. You talk about green jobs and the rest of it. They don't care. Off they go, happily talking about this, and the entire party is suddenly uh, all, all obsessed about levelling up. On the labour side, is this process of introspection where you spend a great deal of time going, oh no, oh no, these places that used to be labour aren't anymore. And not long enough thinking about the places that could be labour for next time. Now, you, you don't want to overdo this. So the, the, the sort of demographic change which, by the way, can't be relied on all by itself. I mean, if you take Worthing or somewhere, it's because you have a, a well-organised local party that's gone out to try and fight and win those council seats that it won. Right, you right. have to get these things right. But that demographic change is a slower process than the political change that's happened in some parts of the country. So so Labour does have a problem there. You can't just sit and wait for everything to drift in its direction. Of course, you have a government that's going to work quite actively to make sure it won't drift in that direction. They're, they're extremely political uh, about how they intervene in the economy, where funding goes, this sort of thing, in a way that that probably previous Conservative governments even even haven't been quite the same. But that's Labour's dilemma, uh, and it has to find a, a resolution to that. And my own suggestion would be that the resolution is don't don't sort of think sentimentally about the north of England, think realistically and politically about who it is you need to win there and what you might have to say to them. And that's going to involve probably money, public services, you know, basic bread and butter labour issues, not culture war. And then do something similar for the south of England, where you, you're addressing kind of new working class in places where, that we used to think of as solidly Tory. Because what's happening in the Tees Valley, you, you, you've sort of dubbed red-green Toryism. Um, and it's obviously, it's working very well um, for him. Um, do you think that that's something that has got much pickup from the party in general, or is this an example of a local politician just, you know, sort of, I suppose, going off in his own tack and and working out what's going to work for him? No, I, I think it, I think it's very much in tune with the way Boris Johnson at least talks about things. And, and Boris Johnson, by, by this point, is is sort of, or at this point at least, maybe it won't be in a few years, but at this point, he's kind of untouchable inside of the Tory Party. He wins stuff. He, he keeps winning stuff. So, so what he says defines an awful lot of, of what the rest of the party does. And, and I think it might be in Hutchin who first started talking about a green industrial revolution. You know, this, this rhetoric purloined directly from Labour in twenty nineteen. Rebecca Long Bailey was talking about a green industrial revolution. The Tories are just expropriated it, to use the old-fashioned term, uh, and repurposed it for themselves. And what Hochin is saying is very much in line with Boris Johnson. He's saying Boris Johnson has discovered climate change in a reasonably big way as a good way to talk about what can be presented as a success story for Britain, by the way. I mean, carbon emissions, greenhouse gas emissions have fallen in Britain, whilst growth has happened, and it gives you something to talk about levelling up, and it sounds nice and futuristic, and it kind of jams together, in addition to this kind of post-Brexit world leader role that they they really want to talk about this year with the COP26 conference in in Glasgow in November in particular. It also gives you a kind of way of sticking together the different parts of your electoral coalition, you know, the sort of bits that are somewhat more working class and jobs is a big focus with the sort of perhaps more Cameroonian, you know, we care about the environment sort of end of it. I realise I'm stereotyping somewhat at this point, but it gives you a good rhetoric to jam everything together and make it look like a functioning political project. So so I think Hutchin isn't out on a limb here. I think this is probably where the cutting edge of Toryism in Britain in 2021 actually finds itself. Well, so let, let's think about Labour again. It, it's, I've had the impression over the last year and a, and a half that sort of one faction 
of the party only wants to talk about 2017 election and another one only wants to talk about 2019 um, because obviously those two tell two quite different stories. What's your, I mean, if you come to sort of some conclusions about, I suppose, the difference between those two elections, what went right, then went what went wrong, and therefore the kind of thing one could take, the kind of lessons that one could take from those years that could be embraced by the party at large and, and not just, you know, the left. I mean, I've I worked with um, others on this this Labour Together review. I was on the commissioners for a review of, of what went wrong in 2019, which is actually you know, kind of a learning things from 2017. You try and assess what happened in the last election and try and develop some some party wide accepted proposals about what happened there. That I think was very detailed, sort of as rapidly as we could study of, of where things went. Uh, and it's fairly clear, you know, you've got your three kind of big things that drove. Uh, the Labour vote in, in the short term, or, or the anti-Labour vote, I should say, in the short term. One of which was Brexit. I mean, it's just true that Brexit was basically a lose-lose for the party. And whatever you said in the thing, you're going to have some people peel off in some direction about it. I don't halt to, to the sort of the, the belief that if only 2019 had a different Brexit position, Jeremy Corbyn would be sitting in Downing Street now. I, I don't think this is this is plausible. Another part of it was was the manifesto was seen as as just impractical. It just couldn't be implemented. It was just promises to everybody that that sort of thing. If you went out knocking on doors, you'd get you know get Brexit and you'd get the manifesto. And the third one, of course, was the perceptions of Jeremy Corbyn himself. I, I think unfairly, by the way, but nonetheless, perceptions of Jeremy Corbyn himself, which really really were bad by, by uh, the end of 2019. So so those are the short term things. The, the long-term bits we got into was like just this, the kind of stuff we talked about really, almost a, a demographic shift in who's voting Labour. The fact that Labour votes have been declining in parts of the country, you know, the so-called Red Wall, bits of the North, bits of the Midlands, even more so actually, since 1997. You know, if you take the, the 1997 experience, Tony Blair as Prime Minister loses 4 million Labour votes. Now he can carry on winning elections because the Tories aren't going nowhere at the time. That's basically the mechanism here. But those votes don't really come back. Uh, and we claw back some of them in 2017, and we're either up somewhat on, on 2010 by 2019, but you don't get most of those votes back. And it's not just the votes, it's all the institutions of the Labour Party that wither away all over the place. The party itself becomes moribund. Trade unions uh, increasingly confined to the public sector and, and often not doing very much themselves. I mean, that's the, the truth of it. I mean, you just look at, you know, take a crude measure like strike days lots. Trade unions are not the force in the land they once were. So all your basic institutions that can stick together, a Labour movement and a Labour party, look quite quite with it. Now that that's a really serious problem, obviously, because this isn't something you just turn around by going, oh, well, we'll change the leader. It's all going to be good now. We've rewritten the manifesto. That's, that's dealt with. Brexit has been and gone. So, you know, we're all good to win next time around. No, these are, these are really long-term problems that Labour has. And if you look across Europe, frankly, social democratic, in other words, sort of parties like Labour, like the SPD in Germany or the French Socialist Party, are experiencing exactly the same combination of circumstances. So, so this, is a, this is a big old problem absolutely everywhere. And this is why a lot of the time debate in and around Labour is fairly superficial because it, 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 sort of, it ends up turning on if only we had a different leader or if only this magic policy or that magic policy was put in. And probably none of this will make an immediate difference. Well, I mean, I mean, to take one example, you think that free broadband was a good policy. It also became symbolic of the sort of this impression that the 2019 manifesto was 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 undeliverable. And I think both of those things can be true. And many of Labour's policies in 2017 and 2019 were individually popular. But do you think that the kind of that some in Labour and I, 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 my impression is particularly on the left overstate the importance of policy? relative to narrative and it's always insisting on which policies we're keeping which policies we're going to introduce when 
we've 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 seen actually that if the narrative if you haven't got the narrative right it doesn't matter what great stuff you're offering i mean this was my sort of immediate post 2019 election assessment was was that one way to look at it is that we lost the narrative we didn't define a narrative of labor will be credible because we are going to redistribute and this is what the redistribution looks like and that's basically what we tried to set up with, with some success in 2017 we, we came out straight away in the election talking about who we're going to tax not what to all you know not all the lovely spending we're going to do for everyone uh, and in 2019 that that was flipped entirely on its head that it ends up just being lots and lots of spending promises with no clarity about how this is going to be paid for uh, and you can debate the economic merits or, or whatever of um, whether people should think like that about the economy but the fact is that they do and you want to win the election. So you're going to have to try and uh, cut with the grain in this one. So I think free broadband was a, a very good sort of standalone policy. And, and if you look, I mean, you know, people sometimes criticise Labour communications. I, I think they actually got very good at landing policies by the end. Uh, and it, it landed perfectly and it completely dominated discussion. It's the only thing I remember Labour was really able to get on top of during that election campaign. It dominated discussion for the next sort of three, four days maybe before everyone defaulted back to, you know, talking about Brexit or how terrible Jeremy Corbyn was, whatever it might be. So, so that suggests to me that, that this was a you know a good big dramatic policy you could land uh, in the election campaign and reshape things. If you then try and repeat that trick, you get very rapidly diminishing returns or, or even negative returns after a while. So, so it's not something you can do too often. Uh, there was a similar issue with in 2019 trying to reproduce the, the kind of let's be honest accidental. Uh, success of the, manis- the manifesto. Not that the manifesto was you know, bad or something. It's actually really quite a good, solid, social democratic manifesto. But the, the fact it got leaked, presumably hostilely, by, by someone intending to damage the party, the, the, the press, uh, particularly hostile to Labour, go absolutely crazy uh, about this for, for several days. With the net result, everyone just hears about all the stuff that they want to do. And it turns out these things are quite popular. So, so which was, which was like a, a stroke of luck. Uh, like like nothing else, but also not something that's easy to reproduce. You can't sort of you can try, but it's hard to leak your own manifesto, and it's hard to uh, generate that kind of level of enthusiasm. So so the fixation on policies becomes a sort of became a bit of a thing where you know if you if you want to try and g up some talk in the press, which otherwise may not necessarily give you much of a hearing or give you a really hostile hearing, chucking in some big policy and getting everyone to talk about that was quite a good move, but you can't do it all the time. Uh, and that was that was part of the issue, I think, that came through in 2019. And you wrote a piece for Navarra last year about your first-hand experience of seeing some Labour staffers undermining uh, Corbyn's leadership. What was that like day-to-day? Oh, it's miserable. No, no, it's miserable. Uh, it's 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 it was honestly one of one of the worst jobs or worst working environments, I should say, that, that I've ever had to put up with. I mean, I'm probably I've been relatively lucky in my previous employment, but <laughs> but the point at which basically nothing really works, you know, in the kind of and it's quite hard. You know, you can say there's lots of chat about oh sabotage and this. You know, who knows? It's very hard to tell the difference between someone deliberately being useless and someone just being useless because they're useless. You know, um, my, my own experience is that there was most Labour staff actually kind of wanted to do the job and do it well, but there were patches where it just wasn't going to work properly. Uh, and some of what we've seen coming out since that time, I think, suggests that there were, you know, what's a nice way to put this, there was a sort of political inclinations not to uh, work to the best of people's ability to help the leadership. And you know, that's probably the, the nicest way to put that. So if you're up against this, if, you, if you're sitting in a machine that in theory has all these levers you can pull and things you can do, but nothing ever quite works properly, it's incredibly frustrating uh, and it really damages what you can do and how you can achieve stuff. And it becomes particularly frustrating, of course, you know, if, if you can't get a press release out quickly, this becomes the fault of 
Jeremy Corbyn's team or whatever, rather than the press release is written, it's all ready to go, but it disappears into labour bureaucracy for, for however long. Uh, and, and you get this sort of, you get the kind of, um, you get fingers pointing in your direction, uh, which most of which or many of which probably shouldn't be pointed quite there and maybe need to be pointed somewhere else, should we say. So so you, you it's, 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 it was a tremendously frustrating environment, which got better actually after the, after the 2017 election, but it wasn't particularly pleasant having to work like that, not at all. And do you really believe that it cost Labour the opportunity of forming a minority or coalition government in 2017, that that, that made the difference? You, you, have to, you have to take a little bit of a, a, counterpa- a counterfactual here, which is that if things have been working as they should have done, or, or even just you know, 50% better, let's say, than they should have been, uh, they should have done from 2015 onwards. You're at that point, it becomes cumulative. You're starting to stack up things working well. Your comms is always going well. The press releases are out on time. You can develop a lot more policy than we develop because you have lots and lots of uh, you know useful research and all the rest of it is being done and everything is pointing this in the, in the right direction. In other words, you have a sort of well-oiled, reasonably well-oiled electoral machine focused on how it's going to win the next election, prepare the manifesto, get everything through. It's not implausible to say that if you'd had all that, you'd have been coming into the 2017 election uh, in a much better shape. Uh, as it was, we, we sort of rely a great deal on the small end momentum of having a campaign and getting the ball rolling. And then a few sort of things on the way that helped you on the way, like you know, the manifesto leak and this sort of stuff. Um, and and you know, actually a sort of lack of preparedness on the Tory side. I, I don't think they were quite expecting this to, to be what we could do. If you added into that two years beforehand or 18 months beforehand of things working a bit better, it's not implausible to say we would have got more votes and more votes with a number of marginal seats turns into more seats. So you'd certainly have got more. Uh, you'd have got, it would have been a closer result, I think, in Parliament on top of that and a more plausible discussion about Labour forming you know, a minority government, let's say. Well, it seems that the, over the last year, one of Labour's problems has been that obviously the government has been giving people a lot of money, pumping a lot of money into the economy, being very interventionist, you know, leading various sort of commentators to claim that they're, you know, sort of they're quasi-socialist um, in their spending. You know, as, as we kind of move out and into the next phase, it's sort of Labour's best hope that the, that the sort of the natural instincts of people like Rishi Sunak, and there are obviously still quite a few, you know, austerity hawks and small staters in the Tory party, that that they get more sway and we go back to, I suppose, something closer to the the bad old Tories. Because if they continue to be just sort of, you know, keeping people afloat and investing, then, then actually Labour's guns are spiked. I think that's, that's, that's the expectation of a large number of people that this is going to happen. Uh, and that's an expectation sort of across the party and the left in general, that, that at some point the Tories will just rip the mask off and, and go straight back to, to doing austerity. And, and we all kind of know how this plays out. Uh, and, and I just don't really... There's two reasons thinking that, that won't happen. One of them is, is the simple political factor, which is that they want to hold on to the seats that they won, and a return to austerity looks like a pretty fast way to not do that. The new Northern Research Group of Tory MPs this really takes quite an anti-austerity position. They're quite you know, blunt about uh, not cutting back and spending. And and at this point in time, given that these are seats are just won and the Tories are eyeing up more seats like this, I don't think handing a, an easy win to Labour like, oh yeah, we're just straight back to like, you know, cutting services left, right and centre and, and uh, all the other parts of austerity. I don't think they'll do. I think they'll target them. They already are targeting austerity and things that a whole load of people may not notice so immediately. That had already been happening under George Osborne. They do a, a version of that. But key bits of it, the NHS, education is the most striking one. 
the, the second biggest reason people switched into voting Labour in the 2017 election campaign they gave was schools funding. The first thing Boris Johnson did when he became Prime Minister just about was to say big increase in schools funding to, to shore that up. Now, why, if you don't need to give your opponents a kind of an open goal and, and just pointing at it and saying, please take a shot, do the thing you're really good at, which is opposing austerity, why would you do this? Why would the Tories do this? They haven't been in power for most of the last 200 years by just doing the easy and obvious thing for their opponents to, to get past. So that's the first one. The second one is, uh, look, at it, I, I just think the, the increased costs of dealing with uh, COVID, SARS-CoV-2 becoming endemic uh, over a period of time is just something that's going to involve more uh, government involvement in the economy come what may. And, and you can kind of see versions of this across the world, not just because of dealing with COVID, but also like how are you going to squeeze out uh, advances in technology? How are you going to squeeze out some of the sort of cutting edge improvements in uh, in machinery and equipment and all the rest of it? These these are answers to this tend to involve large amounts of government intervention. You see it in China, most dramatically. The US, Joe Biden's plan, has a huge amount of money directed at manufacturing. The EU is now talking seriously about industrial policy. We'll probably get something eventually fairly similar here from the Tories. And, and, and there's enough Tories you know, like Ben Houchen talking about this kind of way of approaching the economy. Much much more interventionists, much more direct spending, much more steering by the government of what happens on the ground. So no, I don't think this is back to bad old austerity, laissez-faire Tories. It's something much more, um, much more state-led, much more state-involved, but not necessarily very much better for a whole bunch of people. Damn it. Um, so finally, um, given sort of what we've talked about, what you've also written about, the sort of fragmentation of UK-wide politics, these, these, these sort of demographic shifts, do you think Labour will ever be able to win a majority again or is a form of regressive alliance basically the only the sort of realistic prospect of um removing the tories at some point well, we'll never never say never i mean there's any number of things that, that could i mean if you just look at the last six years or so i mean i'll be wary of making really <laughs> be wary of making really sort of firm predictions about what will or will not happen in the future so i wouldn't i wouldn't completely rule it out but it doesn't look particularly good at the minute. And part of what the Conservative Party is, is, is seems to be doing, fair, without much compunction about you know natural justice or being fair or whatever, is sort of steering things. So they are going to be wedged in power for a very long period of time. And the way you're going to crack that is one way or the other. Uh, I think Labour's going to have to talk more seriously and systematically to other parties that occupy a place similar to where it is. I think this applies especially, by the way, if you're talking about how do you seriously make gains in the south of England? Because in a lot of these sort of potential, these places where there's this sort of demographic shifts there's more insecure often graduates but not always graduate workers in rented accommodation across large parts of the south often it's the greens or other parties that are are gaining some of the votes there so it feels like that at some point that has to be a a conversation with other parties about how you actually win some of these places and therefore deprive the Tories of their majority. So it's quite hard to, I mean, I say this, this is a big shift in how Labour thinks across most branches of the party. Because basically, whether you're left or right or in the middle, you more or less think, okay, what we have to do is win a majority Labour government with a programme, we implement the programme, that's that. And you either do a right-wing version of that, or you do a left-wing version of that. You don't think, okay, how do we win a negotiation? How do we uh, win an alliance, a coalition of people in order to make this happen? It's a different way of thinking about how you win political change. Thank you so much for joining me, James Medway. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening. We'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Dorian Linsky. 
The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelda Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>